Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Quavi Andre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's hot on the table this week? Emancipation producer Joey McFarlane came under hot water after bringing a photo of an enslaved man to the movie's red carpet premiere. The photo, most widely known as the scourged back, depicts the scarred back of an enslaved man named Gordon, who was given the name Whip Peter. McFarlane revealed his motivations for bringing the illustration, stating, quote, I wanted a piece of Peter to be here tonight, end quote. However, many on Twitter were not pleased with McFarlane's actions. As one Twitter user wrote, quote, did he call, just call the man Peter? How disrespectful and cringy that he pulled it out of his pocket. Gordon was given the name Whip Peter for the horrific scars on his back due to constant whipping he received during his slavery. Did he brag about owning Gordon until he dies, end quote? McFarlane later issued an apology stating, quote, I wholeheartedly apologize to everyone I offended by bringing a photograph of Peter to the Emancipation premiere. My intent was to honor this remarkable man and to remind the general public that his image not only brought about change in 1863, but still resonates and promotes change today, end quote. So Andre, that begs the question, do you think McFarlane's actions were inappropriate or even problematic? Um, before I get into my answer, I want to break down his apology. I think we've reached a very interesting phase in our society today. Like many celebrities understand that just ignoring a problematic thing that they've done in the past doesn't work in this new day and age because, you know, the internet is forever. Um, it's better to get ahead of things than to let people discover it on their own. With that being said, we're seeing a lot of sorries, but not enough apologies. Like, for instance, when we look at McFarlane's apology, it definitely has the bones of a good apology, but it still missed the mark. Now, I've said this many times on, before on the podcast, but I, I guess I'm going to have to say it again. Um, stop apologizing to everyone apologize to the people that you've hurt by what you did. That's another common thread that I've seen when it comes to people apologizing, specifically when they've said something that offends the Black community. They almost never address the Black community uh, directly, but instead just give like a general, I'm sorry to everyone that was offended, but I digress. I think that what McFarland said was damage control. It was an apology like that was born of actual introspection. Because if it was, he would not have addressed Gordon as Peter again in his statement. Like the fact that he did just shows that he was trying to cover himself from the controversy without doing the actual work to find out why the Black community was offended. Now, to my answer to your question, uh, his actions were absolutely problematic, but also equally unsurprising. Um, if there is one thing that some white people will do, it centered themselves in Black trauma and profit off of it. But even deeper than that, this just proves what I said in a previous episode when we were discussing the reaction to the Dahmer series. White people 
absorb Black trauma very differently than Black people do. Like, even when I did my research for my response to this question, the moment I saw the picture that was referenced, I immediately clicked away. Why? Because when I saw Gordon scarred back, I knew that if I were born in that same type, like that same time period, that back could have just as easily been my own. Like as a black person, such imagery has an emotional weight that white people have no capacity to carry. It's the reason why we continue to see movies and TV shows that depict the horrors of slavery over and over and over again. Like each time with a higher quality lens and more graphic special effects so that every audience member can see that black trauma as clear as if it was happening right in front of them. It's this morbid fascination that turns our trauma into entertainment. And I'm so fucking sick of it, Daquan, but I'm gonna pass the question back to you. What do you think? I completely agree with you on every single point. <laughs> this apology was missing a whole lot. It was missing that direct um, connection to the Black community, specifying exactly who he offended. And like you said before, the fact that he still used the name Peter. I think that a lot of times we need to be able to separate separate ourselves from the issue at hand like i get that you know you kind of you wanted something from this you had your intentions mm -hmm. but your intentions do not outweigh the outcome and impact that happened and so from this situation i really feel like this was an apology that was like all right let me push this out and let me get something so to get the heat off of me because you couldn't even just acknowledge the man's name, his actual name, Gordon. That was his name. Peter was given to him by slave owners. Mm -hmm. So that just shows a level of carelessness and callousness to the reality of these events. And it was absolutely not the time like, why do you think a red carpet premiere, an interview on the red carpet, is the appropriate place to be just pulling out these historical artifacts? And who's to say that you should be the one doing it? You should be the one with it just casually in your pocket. I think that does speak to a level of how a lot of white people in the entertainment industry you know, profit and keep black pain in their pockets. It's mm -hmm. a way of currency for them. They can put something out like this and not only get the, you know, monetary profits because a film like this would get them money, but also the uh, cultural currency of being one of these white allies. And so it was absolutely inappropriate, problematic, and frankly, disgusting. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, like, I also think that there is this strange obsession of people wanting to use or, like, collect historical artifacts. Mm -hmm. Like, what makes something a historical artifact is the fact that it holds the history of whatever time period it was in. It's a snapshot of a certain time in a person's life or a significant event that took place in history. 
Now to use it is not only to depreciate its significance, but to damage the reputation of what that artifact represents. And as far as collecting artifacts that belong to a person goes, I think that the only time where that is acceptable is with the express permission from that person via like a will or the surviving family members and relatives. And if there are none, I think that such artifacts should be donated to the next best thing, like a museum for which those artifacts are most connected to. Like for instance, if it was an artifact from a slave that has no traceable lineage, then it should be donated to a Black history museum for preservation. However, museums, especially big ones, um, also feel a little icky to me because we don't always know how much of their donations are stolen artifacts from conquering nations and so on and so forth. But that's a conversation for another episode. <laughs> All in all, I think that personal collections of historical artifacts can be very problematic if you did not get permission from the community or the family you got the artifact from. But Daquan, I want to ask you, do you think that building personal collections of historical artifacts like Gordon's photograph are problematic, even if you plan on donating them after death? I think so, because the biggest question is, who gives you authority to take ownership of these artifacts. Because a lot of times, you know, like this situation with uh, McFarland, it's like, why are you kind of the gatekeeper of this artifact? There mm -hmm. comes a knowledge, there comes a history, and you as a white man should not be the gatekeeper of Black history. It's just mm. a simple fact. Ooh, Daquan, he, uh, say that again, bitch. Say that one more time for the people in the back. For the people in the back, white people should not be the gatekeepers of Black history, point blank, period. Because, yes, you can say, oh, I've always wanted to find a permanent home after my death or whatever, or even in his apology now, he's like, well, now I'm going to find this these artifacts a home. I'm going to put in the work now. And it's like, why did you even just collect them in the first place? I get people like to collect things like dolls, baseball cards, but these artifacts hold so much history and importance that cannot be replaced and needs to be preserved properly. To my knowledge, McFarlane does not have any library sciences degrees. There are a <laughs> lot of things that need to be done in order to take care of a living document, an original document. And I don't know if he has that knowledge to really keep up with it, seeing that he just kind of had a little pocket card protector around it. And so, yes, there are some museums that have very problematic histories, but there are also many museums and archives that are really dedicated to preserving these mm -hmm. histories and not only preserving them, but educating people on it, mm -hmm. not gatekeeping this information. Because I know for me, when I was majoring in African-American studies in college, one of my greatest privileges was being able to go into different archives and see the original documents of Black writers during the 1920s, 30s, 60s, and see all of these, you know, notes written on receipts, notes on mm -hmm. the back of cards, 
and really be able to grapple with that information and grasp what was happening during the time that I wouldn't have just by reading some textbook, just by reading some general knowledge about the things of the New Negro Renaissance or the Black Arts Movement. And so by gatekeeping this information, you are preventing some people from really being able to learn about their history unless they approach it in a way that you deem acceptable. And that is not your place at all. I wholeheartedly agree. Grammy Award-winning rapper Cardi B issued a warning to her fans regarding plastic surgery on a recent Instagram Live. During the live stream, the rapper said, quote, In August, I got surgery and I removed 95% of my biopolymers. If you don't know what that is, it's ass shots. It was a really crazy process. All I'm going to say is that if you're young, if you're 19, 20, 21, and sometimes you're too skinny and you'd be like, oh my God, I don't have enough fat to put in my ass. So you resort to ass shots? Don't, end quote. She then goes on to urge her fans to consider checking blood levels with a doctor before thinking about getting a BBL. She says, quote, if a doctor says your blood levels are too low or you have diabetes or whatever, don't do it, end quote. With this, Cardi B joins a wave of celebrities who have recently removed body alterations. So Daquan, why do you think that so many celebrities nowadays are reversing their plastic surgery decisions? I think there's multiple layers to it. I think one is a lot of times these surgeries are unsustainable. There are so many different methods in place and there are histories of, you know, research on these types of surgeries, but plastic surgery in a lot of ways are is fairly new in terms of the, you know, history of medicine. And so there are times when things can shift, things can cause problems and because there isn't that recorded history of it, you know, you are learning as you go. And so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is the kind of accessibility of these surgeries. Mm. I'm not saying that these surgeries are accessible really because we know that they come at a high cost point. But we know that a lot more people are seeking out these surgeries and seeking out alternative means, going to different countries, trying to find the lowest price point to really be able to get these types of surgeries. And for a lot of celebrities, I think it was a status for them. They were like, I have this perfect body because I put in the money to get it done. And now they're seeing a lot of people who also have this perfect body. So it's losing the status. It's losing the elitism, the uh, in exclusivity of having that perfect uh, plastic surgery body. But I also think because it's the Melanin March and, and <laughs> we can't not talk about race, we're seeing just this wave because Blackness and Black bodies are kind of going out of vogue. We know that with, especially with people like the Kardashians, they really commercialized Black bodies because there was a time when the traditional body was just, or the traditionally beautiful body was real thin. You didn't have hips, you didn't have a butt, you didn't have breasts. 
because, you know, because of racism, they associated that with black bodies and white bodies were the opposite of that. And that was the standard of beauty. But now they've had their time to kind of cosplay blackness and black people and their bodies. And they're like, okay, I'm tired of it. I want to move on. I want to go from being this kind of reality star to being a mother and a mother who's pursuing law and just like a professional woman. And by doing that, they distance themselves from traditionally associated things of blackness, such as having hips and butts and all of these different things. So I think that there's a multitude of reasons, but it really just comes down to the celebrity on what was the true reason for their removal. But I'll pass it back over to you. Why do you think this is happening? Um, And I agree with a lot of what you just said, too. I think that many celebrities are reversing their plastic surgery because many of them are taking a hard look at their original reasons for having had work done in the first place in a whole new light. Um, Unfortunately, the problem with plastic surgery has never been plastic surgery itself, but our society. Like, mm-hmm. there is this patriarchal and ageism aspect, you know, in our society, men are allowed to age in ways that women in our society are encouraged not to. For example, like in men, salt and pepper hair is a symbol of being distinguished. But for women, it's seen as a sign of senility. Then there's the fact of how much we uplift people who look younger than their age, which I think we've all been guilty of at some point. It's seen as an accomplishment or a sign of good self-care when someone doesn't look their age, when it could just be genetics or other unique factors. And of course, there's this Hollywood image of the ideal body, which you just mentioned, like the man with the six-pack washboard abs, the slim body, the muscled arms, and the women with the curvy body, tight waist, and perky breasts. I mean, All that plastic surgery has done is capitalize on what our society has already deemed attractive, but also equally unattainable. It sells you this pipe dream that if you change this or you change that, you'll fit into the mold and it preys on young insecure minds the most. The saddest part of all of that is that no matter how much you change, you'll never fit into the mold because the mold is always changing. I think that many people who've had extensive work done may be realizing that the reasons they got plastic surgery had nothing to do with their personal desires, but the desires that society has put on them. And I want to be clear, there is absolutely nothing wrong with getting plastic plastic surgery or cosmetic surgeries. If you can afford it, if shit, do it, bitch. Like if I can't, if, if I could afford it, I would absolutely get laser hair removal from my beard because I don't fucking want it. Um, so there's nothing wrong, you know, with improving your body because you want to feel more confident in it. But the problem comes when you break down the reasoning behind why you want plastic or cosmetic surgery done. Like if you're getting it done because you want people to find you more attractive, that may not be the best idea. But if you're doing it because it will make you feel more confident in your body, that may be a better line of thinking. Plastic surgery should be a personal decision, not a decision that you make based on what you think the world will accept you better as. Because if you're getting surgery to fit in, bitch, 
you better have a stacked bank account because you'll be getting surgeries for the rest of your fucking life. But Daquan, I want to ask you, do you think that plastic surgery has become, you know, too normalized by mainstream media? Um, I don't think I would say too normalized. Like mm. you, I don't have a problem with plastic surgery itself. If you want to change a little something, something about you, live your best life. And I think that <laughs> that should just be something that people do. Like, if you want to, you know, like you said, get some laser hair removal, maybe change your nose a little bit, maybe whatever you do, do what makes you and your body happy. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the problem at hand is we are kind of. In media, we have this one size fits all, that there is this body type that you need. And if you don't have it, you have to go get it. You have to change Mm -hmm. all of these different things about you to get that one thing. But like you said, these decisions are a very personal decision. They are very much on a one-to-one basis. And so we should not be promoting this one size fits all. And I also think that There's this aspect of mainstream media, especially early on when people were getting plastic surgery, of really shunning people for getting plastic surgery and Mm. creating all of these different rumors of, oh, she definitely got a nose job. This person got their cheeks filled. They got implants here. And it's like, if they did, so what? Like, why (laughs) is this something that people talk about so much and even vilify at some points? Because... That's their body. That's their choice to do whatever they want with their body. And so I think that something positive for celebrities like Cardi B, you know, really speaking candidly about their experiences and the dangers of plastic surgery, really focuses on making sure that people are aware of everything that can happen, but also, you know, creating this kind of ending the stigma against plastic surgery of just like, making sure that people can make informed decisions. They don't have to rush into getting this body and go through all of these different means, but really know the dangers. Like, girl, yes, you need to know your blood levels. You need to Mm -hmm. make sure that everything is right because if something happens, that's your life you're playing with. Or if you go to a foreign country to get these surgeries done, there are some times when the things that that country uses or the things that doctors in that country uses is only really used there. So if you go to Colombia to get a BBL and you come back here to the States and then something happens, there could be doctors here that will not help you because of what there's different techniques and procedures and things used in other countries. So either they might not have the required materials or whatever, or they don't want to risk themselves because that is a procedure that they might not be familiar with in terms of the techniques used. And that can, you know, ruin their license if something happens. There could be medical malpractice suits. So it's a conversation that needs to be had of just like being honest about uh, plastic surgery and all of the dangers and risks that come for it, but also making sure that people know if you do it, that is your decision. Yeah, I agree. And I I think I want to kind of second that in a way, because I think that the results of plastic surgery are more normalized than the risks. Like plastic surgery is still a major procedure. 
I mean, surgery is literally in the name. Um, there are already so many risks involved with undergoing necessary surgery as is, but voluntary surgery that requires doctors to put you to sleep and shift and change things in your body should never be taken lightly. Like they use, you know, cute terminology like a nip tuck or getting yanked and so on. But the fact of the matter is there are so many complications that can come from it. It's the reason why shows like Botched exists. Um, and even if it's done properly, there's no telling how long it will hold or if we discover that the way it's done today may have unforeseen complications down the line. Consider the use of silicone injections, for instance. In an article written on Very Well Health by Bliss Splain, we learned that for more than 60 years, liquid injectable silicone has been used for soft tissue augmentation, drawing mixed reactions from the public and medical community. While many doctors consider silicone too risky for facial cosmetic injections, which is not approved by the FDA, there are doctors who use it legally and successfully, they say, for off-label use. However, there have been many reports of complications following silicone injections for cosmetic purposes, such as scarring, tissue death, permanent disfigurement, and long-term pain. In the silicone that moves beyond the injection site, you know, silicone embolism syndrome can block blood vessels in the brain, lungs, and heart. And this can result in stroke and death. Again, this is not to say that all plastic surgery is bad and that it will all lead to serious complications. It's just me clarifying that before you take the plunge, really take time to consider why and if this is really the best option for you to get what you're searching for. Because even though some plastic surgeries can be undone, you still have to undergo yet another procedure. So really take a pause before you just jump in. Recently, Lady Susan Hussey has resigned from her role at Buckingham Palace amidst controversy surrounding her problematic line of questioning towards Ngozi Fulani, who heads the charity Sister Space supporting victims of domestic abuse. Fulani recounted her experience, noting how Hussey moved Fulani's hair and repeatedly asked her questions like, quote, where are you really from? What part of Africa are you from? And where do your people come from?" End quote. Buckingham Palace responded to the allegations, calling the remarks, quote, unacceptable and deeply regrettable comments, and the individual concerned would like to express her profound apologies for the hurt caused and has stepped aside from her honorary role with immediate effects, end quote. So, Andre, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about this incident? Um, first of all, the apology shouldn't have come on behalf of Lady Susan. It should have come from her directly since she was the one who was at fault. However, something about her resigning immediately feels very off to me. Um, now, I don't know the specifics of whether her resignation was on her own accord or encouraged by those in charge, but either way, Lady Susan should have apologized both privately and publicly to Ngozi Fulani, like before deciding to leave her station. Like it feels, it feels like instead of taking accountability for her actions and expressing her understanding of why her line of questioning was very racist, 
she took the easy way out and just dipped. And because now we have a black woman, the person who was on the receiving end of the disrespect and racism, being potentially vilified for being the reason this white woman no longer has a job. Like in an interview on the independent website, Falani even said herself that the issue was quote, bigger than one individual. It's institutionalized racism. She said, quote, as a black person, I found myself in this place where I wanted to say something, but what happened would automatically be seen as my fault. It would bring my charity sister space down. It would be a, oh, she has a chip on her shoulder, end quote. The fact that Lady Susan Hussey felt so comfortable to ask these questions shows that this is probably not the first time that she's done something like this, but the first time that she's been called out on it. Like, if you read the recount of their conversation, Fulani is clearly uncomfortable with Lady Susan's invasive line of questioning, but she keeps pressing on repeatedly. It's that caucasity we've talked about before, plus entitlement. Like, she couldn't accept the fact that Fulani didn't want to talk about her cultural background or ethnicity at the event, so she pushed and pushed until she got what she wanted because as a white woman, she felt entitled to an answer. And Fulani's ethnicity was not Lady Susan's business, but she made it her business. And that's the real problem here. But Daquan, what do you think? What are your thoughts, bitch? I completely agree because <laughs> one of the biggest problems was, I mean, first of all, we got to start with the hair touching. Oh, Do bitch. not touch a black person's hair, period. Don't touch anybody's, anybody's. <laughs> because it's just like, that's so invasive to even start. Like, I can understand, okay, you can't see the name tag. Be like, excuse me, can you, you know, show your name tag or a little bit? Or, you know what? Ask their name. Exactly. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Where are you? What, uh, what uh, organization are you with? Like, that's something so easy, but to just be like, okay, I see your name. Now. Like, that's invasive and it just like shows like oh i have privilege to just like move you and do whatever with your body and it's like no this is my body there keep the space the <laughs> bubble know, get, get out of my bubble <laughs> right get out of my bubble but also the line of questioning was just so invasive and i think the biggest problem was Susan Hussey obviously just saw it as a game. She literally was like, oh, you're going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge getting what I want out of you. And it's like, mm -hmm. that is disgusting. Mm -hmm. If somebody says, oh, I'm with this organization or I am a British national, that should be the end of the conversation. But you completely asking again and again and again and seeing this person gets uncomfortable with the questions should have been enough for you to be like stop or even just like reconsider why are you asking these questions in the first place and i have to say that this whole apology and exchange and all of this stuff really seems like a cop out of mm -hmm. accountability mm -hmm. where she could have personally you know sent a message out herself because what it does is, like you said, it paints uh, Fulani as this angry Black woman who's going mm -hmm. after this old lady. 
this old nice lady like she was 85 like she was just doing her job mm -hmm. and now she doesn't have it because of you and mm -hmm. i've seen so many you know people being like oh you were you just did what you wanted to do you were being a race baiter you just was you had a chip on your shoulder and you wanted this white lady out of here this old nice white lady and it's like that is not the reality of the situation. Plenty of people in the situation realize what happened and also are saying that's not the reality of the situation. So it's just disgusting how racist people are towards her to the point that Fulani has stopped talking about the situation, has mm -hmm. stopped agreeing to interviews because she just gets all of this vitriolic hate towards her, spewed at her. When she's just trying when to she was the one who was hurt. <laughs> right. When she is the one who was hurt and is just trying to bring awareness to a systemic issue. And I can't not mention that Lady Susan Hussey was the person that was supposed to assimilate Meghan Markle into the royal family. So seeing what she did to Fulani <laughs> and the racism in this situation. You can only imagine what Meghan Markle had to deal with during her time in the royal family. Big point, I'm sipping on this teacup, bitch, I'm sipping on this teacup! Right, you know, that documentary just came out or is coming out, so we really know what happened behind the scenes. And she's talked about all of the racism that happened, so maybe it's time we acknowledge that, you know, especially some of these monarchs are racist. Maybe. <laughs> Just maybe. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's problematic to inquire about someone's ethnic or cultural background as long as it's appropriately asked. Right. Like, what frustrates me is that people don't usually ask what's your ethnicity or cultural background. What they ask is where you're from. Then when people answer with, well, I'm from New York or Atlanta or Oregon, the person, usually white, will respond with, no, what's your nationality? And then the person answers, well, I'm American or British, Australian. And then here comes the worst part when the person follows up with, no, 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 no. Where are you really from? Just like we saw from Lady Susan talking to Fulani. The crux of why these questions are racist isn't necessarily the questions themselves, but the intention behind them. Because usually when people ask questions like these, they are essentially othering the person because they aren't white or the same race as them. It gives the same energy of when Mitch McConnell said Black Americans are voting just as much as Americans. Underlying Mitch McConnell's statement is the idea that there is a division between true Americans and Black Americans. This is the same problem with that line of questioning I just brought up. All of the possible answers given are correct, but when you refuse to accept them, you are discrediting parts of that person's identity to boil them down to the aspect that you feel best describes them, and that's not okay. But even when you do, ask someone their cultural background or their ethnicity. 
understand that some people don't like discussing this for various reasons. They may not feel connected to that part of their identity. It may be tied to a part of their family they won't, you know, want to wish to remind themselves of, or they consider their lineage to be private, or, or, and hear this part really clearly, they just don't want to fucking tell you. And if any of these are the case, let it go and move on because you're not entitled to that information, nor are they obligated to give it to you. Also, don't even, don't ever start off a discussion about someone's ethnicity with a guessing game. Like, don't ever walk up to a person and be like, oh, are you insert ethnicity here? Because that's already racist as fuck to begin with. But as you keep going, you just keep digging an even deeper racist hole. So please don't do that. Uh, but Daquan, what do you think? Is it, is it problematic to inquire about someone's ethnic or cultural background? I don't think it's inherently problematic or racist or anything like that. But like you said, it comes down to the intent and how you do it. Because, you know, if you were just outright clear with it and ask, oh, you know, what's your ethnic background? What's your cultural background? Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. But saying where are you from, especially in a situation like that, is a very vague question. You could be talking about the organization. What organization mm -hmm. are you from? What, you know, Providence, state, city, mm -hmm. town, whatever, country. It, there's just so many layers to it that you could just... I think the really big problem comes when you just repeatedly ask, where are you from? Where are you really from? Because it's already a vague question. And by just asking the same question over and over again you are putting the burden on the other person. You are mm -hmm. essentially making out to where it's like, no, you're not understanding me. You are being incompetent in this situation. You're not under, and it's like, no, you should be like, oh, I should clarify myself. I was not clear. Mm -hmm. What ethnic background do you have? That is how you should handle a situation like that. That is something that I learned as a teacher. Like if you give instructions, and people aren't doing it, people aren't doing the things that in the way that you said it, maybe you should take a step and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I did not explain these instructions clear enough. Let me re-ask this question in a different way that is more clear. Because I don't want my students to feel stupid because they just think that, oh, well, like, I didn't understand it, maybe I'm stupid. No, you are not the one who was unclear, I was. And mm -hmm. so you need to take that accountability in that line of questioning and being like, I'm sorry, this is what I actually mean. Point blank, period. Or if it's something like maybe you see somebody in a cultural garb, act specifically about that garment, the history of that garment. Where does that garment culturally come from? Any cultural significance like that? If you don't want to directly ask, what's your ethnicity? And like you said, if somebody doesn't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it. That's their prerogative. They don't have to say, like, if you come and ask me where I'm from, I'm like, I don't know. Somebody stole my people, put them on a boat, and brought them here. They did not list us from where we were coming from. They listed us as property. We're, like, that's <laughs> the biggest thing is, like, 
there's a lot of reasons why somebody may not be comfortable asking that question or answering that question. And it is all valid. It is should all be respected. And just like, it also begs the question, like, what is the point? What like, is the point? What does this add to the conversation that <laughs> I What do you get out of this? <laughs> like, it would be one thing if you are, like I said before, if you're asking about a specific garment or, mm-hmm. you know, you are, you see somebody wearing something, you know, that's customs or something like that, that then there's a point to the question. Yeah. Why do you need to know that? Is that going to change how you see me, how you feel <laughs> about me, how you interact with me? Like, why do you need to know that? What was the reason? <laughs> right. And of course, a lot of times they want to be like, oh, well, I just did this mission trip to that country oh, in Africa. And like, they're oh. trying to bring the most problematic connections. And it's like, no, don't don't even go down that path. Don't do that. <laughs> Let's stop there. Let's... Right. <laughs> now, so many children grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. So it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did that. In an article written on sadiecollective.org titled Honoring Her Legacy, we learned that in the United States, Dr. Sadie T.M. Alexander was the first African-American to earn a PhD in economics and the second Black woman to earn a doctoral degree. After completing graduate school, Alexander found that many employers dismissed her credentials despite her stellar record. This led her to pursue law school, making her the first African-American to be awarded a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Throughout the rest of her life, she worked with her husband in their co-owned law firm addressing issues pertaining to the civil rights of African-Americans. Her exceptional journey is honored today by the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, of which she was the first national president and is dedicated to stellar college-educated Black women. Other entities honoring her legacy include the Black Law Student Association at the University of Pennsylvania and the Sadie Tanner Mosell Alexander Elementary School. In recalling her academic journey, Dr. Alexander has said that, quote, she knew well that the only way she could get that door open was to knock it down because she knocked all of them down, end quote. She retired from her practice and from public life generally in 1982 and passed away a few years later after in 1989. Do we Black women. Let's Black, say it. Black, Black women. women. <laughs> Just constantly rising the bar. It's beautiful to see, honestly. Jerry Lawson, also known as the father of the video game cartridge, was a pioneer in the gaming industry. Inspired as a child by the work of George Washington Carver, Lawson dabbled in electronics growing up, repairing televisions to make a little money before enrolling at Queens College, part of the City University of New York. His interest in computing led him in the 1970s to Silicon Valley's homebrew computer club, of which he was the only Black member at the time. 
In the mid-1970s, Lawson helped create the Fairchild Channel F, a home entertainment machine that was the first cartridge-based home video game console system. At the time, most video game systems had the game's programming built into the hardware so it could not be removed or changed. Lawson and his team refined and improved technology developed at Alplex that allowed games to be stored as software on removable ROM cartridges. These could be inserted and removed repeatedly from a console unit without any danger of electric shocks. There is a display of Lawson's contribution to the gaming industry on permanent display at the World Video Game Hall of Fame at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. On April 9, 2011, about one month after being honored by the International Game Developers Association, he died of complications from diabetes. You know, it's mighty funny how we've contributed so much to so many things, especially like the gaming industry and the fact that they can't create black characters in games with actual accurate hair types. That's that's, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> Listen, I was playing a game the other day and I was like, okay, you have four skin tone shades <laughs> and the only black one is super ashy. Like, do better. Do, do better. fucking better, but slay. But he slayed that. He ate that. Right. We stay innovating shit. Like, we stay innovating shit. Period. Well, Andre, we've reached that time again. Another <laughs> year of the Melanin Margin down, and hopefully so many more to come. To close out the last episode of the year, I wanted us both to do a year review of our show. So... Andre, what were some of your favorite moments or topics this year? I think one of my favorite conversations we've had this year was the college admissions experience one, because it's one that I wish we had way more of in the Black community. There were so many mistakes I made in college that if someone really sat me down and shared a few of the tips and tricks that we told... I would have been so much better off. My hope is that like, because we had the conversation that a teen who may be going to college soon will stumble across our video in their recommended page so that we, so that, you know, maybe they can go to college a little more prepared than we did. <laughs> and I think also um, one of my favorite conversations too was one of the first conversations we did um, about the Billy Porter situation um, to kind of start off our new uh, journey into talking about current events. It was one of the best decisions we've ever made for the show, honestly. So yeah, that was very, very fun. It was kind of the first time we established, you know, that current events conversation. And it was just so much fun to get into the to the feel of like, okay, we're really in the current, you know, what's going on. We're in this, we in this shit, bitch. Right. Honestly, Getting into the current events has been one of the best things because <laughs> child, some of the reads from this year, immaculate. <laughs> like, child, there was just so many moments. And I think also the deep dives that we do have also been really interesting in terms of like our experiences being non-binary and yeah. pursuing creative careers. I think that these are conversations that are important because it's hard <laughs> like there's so <laughs> much going on and there's just it's a lot so to be able not only to 
vocalize my own experience and think about it and like try to explain certain things, but also know that there's somebody here to relate to those experiences and that there's people who are watching who also relate to these experiences is really affirming and just makes it very comfortable. And also, this isn't a specific moment, but I love looking back at our episodes and looking at what makeup look I did for that week because <laughs> there are so many where I'm like, okay, I slayed. Like, I cleared. I, I cleared. did thing. There are some where I'm like, okay, that was a choice. But like, <laughs> always a bad bitch because that's who I am. And I stand by, I stand by any decision. I still love your Shigo look. That one, oh my God. I love the eye makeup on that one. It was so beautiful, bitch. Clear the place. So great. <laughs> so now we got to talk about the other side of the coin, Daquan. Uh, oh, what were some of the hardest conversations or topics this year for you? I think all of February. <laughs> every, at, like, I don't know what was happening end of January, beginning of February. But literally week after week after week, there was just hard-hitting topic after hard-hitting topic from, like, <laughs> the HBCU bombings to the Don't Say yeah. Gay Bills and everything Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. And there was just so much that was really triggering, honestly. Yeah. And it was hard to deal with, but I'm also grateful to be able to have a platform like this to process what's going on because i know if i just let that sit in my mind and did not have an outlet to talk about it would tear at me but yeah. you know that still doesn't make it any easier to talk about but it makes it much more of a relief to get it out in the first place yeah i agree i think that it's been a really rough year um for us so many different things um there were so many conversations uh, Roe v. Wade overturning is really up there at the top for me because of how many ramifications it's had on our society and to people with vaginas. Like outside of the obvious inhumanity of taking away someone's personal bodily autonomy, the amount of states that have totally outlawed abortion and provide no support for the people they are forcing to be parents is fucking disgusting. Disgusting. And there were also um, that conversation we had about Emmett Till, um, mm -hmm. the opera written by a white woman centering a white voice. Claire Koss. That, uh, uh, yes. uh, that, shit, that shit right there pissed me the fuck off. Still does. Still fucking does. The Oscar slap that took me on a whirlwind of emotions and unpacking about respectability politics and so on. And most recently, that fucking Dahmer TV show. Like, the Dahmer sympathizers, the people dressing up their kids as him for Halloween, and the people from TMZ telling the victim's family to just get over it because it's Halloween and people are gonna dress up nearly brought me to the angriest fucking tears ever, bitch. Like, it was just, it, it's not easy being tuned into current events like me and Daquan are on this show, but we keep doing it because we hope and hope that it will open up a conversation that will eventually turn into action and maybe create some fucking change in this bullshit. Right. Like I'm a cold heartless bitch. I don't feel emotions. I'm a Capricorn, but there were some times <laughs> this year where I was feeling emotions. Right. Like, ugh. But Daquan, what are some of the things that you hope um, our show will accomplish in the new year? 
Um, everything. We're <laughs> going to take over the world. This is going to be our our world, our universe. We're <laughs> going to the next galaxy. You'll see us over in the neutron galaxy or whatever. <laughs> no, but seriously, I one of the biggest things is growth, not necessarily yeah. numbers, because numbers only play a part of this show like it's great to connect to different audiences and it would be great to have more listeners and get the voices and you know our topics out more widely but i think just the growth of us as people in this show and you know people who listen to it is what's really at the core like being able to see how much this show has evolved from when we first started it with those <laughs> ultra mega deep dives that we yeah. were just like, okay, this ain't sustainable to moving out <laughs> the hot topics and just like creating a show. I want to see that continue to grow and evolve and, you know, maybe even changing platforms, doing a show in person would be great. Yes. Just like really upping our quality consistently and making sure that this is the best show we can make it. Absolutely. I fully agree. I think that one of the main goals I want for our show is that we start to cultivate a community. Like Daquan and I love to have conversations with each other about everything going on in the news, but the Melon Margin is about bringing the marginalized to the spotlight. So we'd love to have a community of other marginalized people weighing in on the hot on the table topics. I'd also love for us to eventually have guests and hopefully hold Instagram or TikTok lives where we can, you know, have some people come in and give us new and interesting perspectives that we might not have considered, you know? So hopefully in this new year, we can start to see some of that shit coming into fruition. I mean, cause we ready. (laughs) Hopefully it will happen. A period. (laughs) Manifesting that. Manifest, the manifest. (laughs) Now, As always, thank you all so much for watching. And please keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at The Melanin Margin for updates on new content. And if you'd like to follow each of us, our handles are at Daquan M-U-E. And at Andre Talks A Lot. Now we will see you all next time on the Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now.